You are listening to National Security Law Today. It's National Security Law Today, the official podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, we've got another installment in our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by highlighting women's achievements in national security. We're excited to welcome Bonnie Jenkins to the cast. Bonnie, it's a real treat to have you for this series because you're so very on brand for it. Not only are you extraordinarily accomplished as a national security subject matter expert, but your most recent projects involve strengthening the careers of other women in NATSEC and bringing more women into the field. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's really an honor for me to be here. Um, I am looking forward to having a really good conversation with all of you. So thank you. All right. Well, let's start out with the part of your career that is super relevant to today's issues, which is infectious disease response or pandemic response. You worked on the global Ebola response through the global health security agenda. So can you tell us about the, we're going to call it throughout this podcast, GHSA, and how it contributed to the containment of what was a really frightening virus in in Ebola. Yeah, thanks. That's um, that's a really good question. And actually, when we developed GHSA, it was actually in 2013. So it was actually before Ebola hit. We had, and when I say we, I mean there were different parts of the U.S. government, two representatives from each one who met on a Saturday uh, afternoon. And the reason why we met was we realized that there was a coming, uh, increasing coming threat towards us uh, regarding infectious disease. And so in 2013, uh, representatives from State Department, Department of Defense, the White House, the FBI, Health and Human Services, uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture, Center for Disease Control, and I'm sure I'm leaving out some alphabet soup um, organization, all met. Uh, already thinking about a whole of government response to how we deal with infectious disease, because we realized that this was an issue that was increasing because we were seeing more, more instances of diseases, whether it was H1N1, H1N9, SARS. We had recently had um, the anthrax attacks, which cost so much money for the United States to deal with. Uh, we recognized that there was all this global travel. We recognized that countries were not prepared and we realized this because the World Health Organization has something called international health regulations where countries have to basically certify that they are prepared to deal with infectious disease. And less than 30% of countries said that they could. And this was a self-determination kind of assessment. So it could have been less than that. Um, and we also had something called antimicrobial resistance, which is increasing um, resistance that people around the world are having to antibiotics. So all these things were happening. And so we realized that we needed to do something to address what was a growing threat. So we actually launched it, after skipping a lot of details, we launched it in 2014 in February. And um, we had about 22 ministers who came from around the world. And it was a snow day in in Washington. So everything was closed except the Department of Health and Human Services where we had the launch. Um, And then a month after the launch, we had Ebola. So we had already started to set up an infrastructure to try to deal with this issue of infectious disease. So that's how GHSA got started. It still continues. And what it did do was already start uh, two things. It started a whole of government interagency process for how we're going to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats, whether it's natural, accidental, or human um, made. And that's where I came in because I do biosecurity work. Um, 
and uh, and we also establish uh, uh, infrastructure to work internationally. So fortunately, we had that, and so we had a way to talk about and discuss issues of Ebola, but it wasn't yet a strong enough function that it could really serve um, initially to deal with Ebola. Um, and that's where the World Health Organization comes in because they're the big, obviously the international organization that deals with these things. But it also was not really that the arbiter in terms of what the U.S. was able to do later in terms of playing a leadership role on Ebola. And it's basically impossible to talk about infectious disease response right now without thinking about our ongoing pandemic. So could you compare and contrast between the U.S.'s Ebola response, which you just talked about, and the COVID-19 response, and the respective outcomes at these two moments in time? Yes, there are several, there are several differences. One um, is the, the disease itself. Um, obviously, this is a different type of disease than Ebola, um, which is a reason why it's been spreading as fast as it has. Ebola was one where you had to actually touch a person who had Ebola to actually get the disease. Um, here, it's with this disease, it's more airborne. You can, which is the worst kind you, you want. You want, you don't want this kind where it's so contagious. That in itself um, makes it a different type of disease and less able to contain it. Um, the second difference is the role of the international community. Um, in the Ebola situation, there was a, a period of time where nothing was really happening. Um, but eventually the U.S. came in and uh, sent troops over there. And internationally, there was a lot more work. A lot of countries were sending over mobile labs. You had private sector involved, um, you know, uh, with the, the type of things that they could provide, whether it's uh, all kind of medical equipment. Um, there was a lot more act activity after a long time when nothing was happening. And I think everyone was waiting for the WHO to see what their role is, which is not really a response. That's not what they really do. Um, and so finally the U.S. kind of took the lead and sent our troops over and then, and then uh, and a lot more activity was working, was happening with other countries. So you had a lot more, but like I said, it was one region. It was one part of Africa. It was a lot easier to focus and not all countries were being impacted. So they didn't have to spend all their money and time taking care of their own citizens. They were able to pull together to focus on West Africa. This time you don't have that. You have a much, the type of disease is different it's a lot more contagious. You have countries around the world who are dealing with the issue. So you know, so countries have to focus on their own work. I mean, their own citizens and what they're doing. Um, there is no, the US did not take a leadership role. So you don't have a country that's really stepping forward and saying, okay, we got to do something about this. Let's get together, let's figure it out, let's do that. Um, so, you know, a lot of those things, and, and there's no real, I mean, there's discussions that are going on. I'm not seeing in, in the WHO discussions, um, but there's no, from my perspective, no real actor. There's no real country that's kind of grabbing it and saying, we need to do something because the World Health Organization, that's not kind of, they're, they're, a, um, they're an international organization. They're a bureaucracy with the limitations that exist there. So I think that's one of the, those are a couple of things that I think are, I mean, there's a lot of differences to me, but I think those are some of the things that I would highlight as most, of, most different. Thanks. And can you, you know, you mentioned the WHO. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about exactly what they do as opposed to coordinating the responses 
is what maybe people uh, people think of it as. Yeah. The World Health Organization deals with a lot of issues in health. I mean, infectious disease is just one of them, but they deal with a lot of, you know, almost any issue dealing with health, you know, cancer or polio or, you know, infectious disease, but non-infectious diseases. They, and so they deal with a lot of issues. It's the one organization that has all the countries in the world, and I'm not exactly sure how many, um, but they're, you know, they're there. So they meet on a regular basis and they're like, you know, they're an international organization. So they have the advantages and the limitations. The advantages being that's the one place where these issues can be discussed amongst countries, um, which you want because this is a global issue. So you want to be, it has to be a global focus on it, regardless of what the action is. There has to be global discussions on the issues. Um, but they deal with more than infectious disease. So I think people focus a lot on that because that's what we're talking about. Um, but they also have the, like I said, the limitations, their bureaucracy. So bureaucracies have to have discussions and agreements. They're not, they're, they're not the people who put on the suits and run out. They're not CDC that puts on the white and, you know, they, they have people who work with them to do that, but they're, that's not what they do. Um, but they play a very strong role in being that place where you have these discussions, um, and have these. And so we've been, obviously we've been, uh, a very big part of WHO for many years. Uh, a lot of our budget doesn't even go into the infectious disease work. We, we put into a lot of other things that WHO does as, a, as an entity that working on health issues, global health issues of many types. So the Trump administration has set a date to withdraw from the WHO. How is that gonna infect, affect the infectious disease response for both the US and the rest of the world? Um, a lot of it is, well, there's, there's reality, which is, um, you know, there's less money going into it. So if there's less money going into a joint entity, there's less that the joint entity can do together to deal with the disease. Um, so even though, I mean, I, like I said, a majority of, the majority of our money doesn't necessarily go into the infectious disease work of WHO. Um, but, um, you know, by taking any money out, you, with, you're withdrawing funds from the ability of WHO to work on the issue as, a, as an organization and with other countries. And then there's the perception, which is, you know, it's not a good perception for us because um, the other countries are still going to stay. They're not leaving WHO because we are. And they also recognize that if you're in a pandemic, the last thing you need to do is withdraw from an organization that is actually set up to be a global organization to deal with health issues. There is no other one. It is just this WHO. Um, so perception-wise, it doesn't look good for us. It's another not. It's another knock on our, our roles as being a leader on issues. Um, but what happens is there, whatever discussions take place, if we're not there, we, we can't benefit from it. Um, and so we will lose that. But also, you know, the CDC works for, has a good relationship with WHO overall, same with our Health and Human Services, which is kind of our lead uh, working with the World Health Organization. So, you know, there's, there's, there's real impact financially, there's perception impact, and then there's impact in terms of how we can work with them in future disease uh, things that happen, you know. And um, so, you know, we can't anticipate what the next big disease is going to be. There's always infectious diseases floating around. You just don't always hear about them because they don't kill as many people and because CNN, there's no CNN effect. But there's always going to be another disease. After this, there'll be something else. Um, and so this is a time when we should be working more closely with global organizations, not less 
with them because that's that's going in the wrong direction. All right. Well, um, I do want to pivot to some of your other work, um, but just before we get off this topic, I just want to ask a follow-up question. Uh, one of the things is China is a member of WHO, and I think um, I'd sort of like to get your reaction to uh, the claim, which appears to at least have some factual basis that um, China maybe wasn't as receptive as West Africa was to U.S. assistance and coordination early on. Um, and now they, they occupy a role in WHO that we have really ceded as a nation. What, what are your thoughts on that before we move on? Um, well, I mean, I think we've done that in many respects. We've seated, we've seated our leadership role in many, in many entities on many areas. Um, and um, I don't, if we're, if we're, if we have an issue with China and particularly with China's role in different sectors and their influence, we're not acting like we really care about it because we're pushing, we're pulling ourselves away from forums, international entities, and leaving the chair open for them to step in. So it's kind of difficult for us to be, to argue about it and at the same time cede it to China. Um, I think there are some, obviously some valid concerns about um, China's being open and honest about what happened. Um, but I will say that they're not the only country that does that. There's other, there's other cases where countries, because they recognize what the impact will be to them. And some countries favor, and not, I'm, not, I'm not saying China, but there are countries that favor their tourist industry. Um, they don't want people to think there's anything wrong. And so they, a lot of times they think, oh, we can resolve this ourselves, or we can fix this ourselves. And they don't understand how these diseases are sometimes, you can't always control a disease. A disease has its own mind. It's gonna do what it wants to do. So unless you have a way to stop it with a vaccine or something else, if it's, if it's contagious, it's just gonna go. It doesn't care about who you are, what your politics are, where you live, what your race is. And so, um, you know, there are some diseases that you can contain, you know, but there are some that you can't. And the, the less you know about a disease, the more likely you want to let people know because you may not be able to figure out before it gets out. Um, so it's not unusual that countries are quiet about diseases. I'm sure there are diseases that we don't know about that were out there because they didn't tell anybody. Unfortunately, they were able to be contained. Um, it would have been good if China had been much more open about it, but it's not unusual for countries not to say something if they think they can contain it. So that's those are my two responses. It's not a good thing to do. <laughs> it's not a good thing to not to tell people. All right, well, let me, let me go on to the question that I was hoping to pose to you next. Um, and that really has to do with sort of the arc of your career, which I'm hoping uh, young women uh, or mid-career women would listen to, which is that you've done, uh, you've gained a, you know, a remarkable amount of expertise during your time. You were also the ambassador at the State Department coordinating threat reduction programs for the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. So why don't we talk a little bit about the work that you did while in that position? Sure. Um, so the position was the first day. There was no the, the, the position was a newly created one. <clears throat> and what they wanted to do, at least State Department, when I was hired, was to have a person who could be a coordinator of um, programs 
that are out there to prevent weapons of mass destruction terrorism. Weapons of mass destruction being chemical, biological, nuclear weapons. Um, and radiological, when we talk about CBRN, which is chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear. So you hear those two terms, CBRN, WMD. Um, and my background uh, has been in WMD, that's been my life. So I did a lot more initially on what they call nonproliferation, which is preventing states from acquiring these weapons. And this, and then uh, transitioning slowly to looking at individual actors and making sure individuals themselves don't get their hands on chemical precursors or biopathogens or nuclear material that can be used or radiological sources that can be used for a weapon. Um, so that was my job. That was what I was hired to do. There were a lot of little things, or not necessarily little, that were that were part of that. One is obviously GHSA. I got in that because of my biosecurity side of the work and looking at the, the intentional side of infectious diseases, make sure that people don't do it on purpose, uh, which fortunately this was not, COVID-19 is not a intentional, it's more of a natural um, disease. Um, and then of course I did work on nuclear security uh, at the nuclear security summits. I was a state department representative to the nuclear security summits. We had four of those between 2010 and 2016. Um, I, uh, did a lot of work on something called the Global Partnership Against the Spread of Weapons and Materials of Mass Destruction. I was a U.S. representative to that. Um, I played a, a large role in the extension of that because it was supposed to end in 2012. We weren't able to extend it. And that's a 30-member entity, even though it's G7, it's a 30-member entity where we do coordination of all of our programs to prevent weapons of mass destruction terrorism. Then I did a lot of work with international organizations like the World Health Organization, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Interpol. Um, so I did a lot of work with individual um, departments and agencies that deal with chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological issues. So that's basically it. I did a bunch of other little things on the side. So tell us, wow. Bonnie, what was your educational background and professional experience before you were to undertaking these most weighty of responsibilities? Um, my background, my general background is I'm from New York, from Bronx, New York, um, and uh, always had an interest in working for the government in public service. So I eventually wove my way through New York City government, went up to Albany, did New York State government, then came down to the federal government. Um, and uh, so I worked at federal government. I left, went back to get my, um, well, I, I'll do the education later. Um, and then I left government for a while, worked at the Ford Foundation um, before I went to, uh, went to this job that I had that you're, you're asking about at the, as an ambassador. Um, I worked on a number of congressional commissions um, including the 9-11 Commission, um, a couple of the commissions that deal with terrorism um, and WMD as well. Um, educationally, I always loved education. I still liked, I still love education. I would love to go back and get another PhD, but I just don't think that's going to be happening. Um, but uh, I went to college at Amherst College, and I majored in psychology and black studies. And then I went to um, get my graduate study up in Albany because I wanted to be in state government. So I got my master's in public administration at SUNY Albany, State University of New York at Albany. Got a law degree at Albany Law School. Then I <clears throat> came down to Washington to do the federal work that I've always wanted to do. 
And while I was there, I worked at the, um, I was a presidential management fellow and started working at OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense. Then I went over to an agency called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, which doesn't exist anymore. It's at State Department where it was actually located, but it was folded into state in the late 90s. And I worked on a number of treaties there. Uh, and then I, um, basically every treaty was biological, chemical, nuclear. Then I decided to get my master's in law in public in uh, international law because I essentially took not a single international law course while I was in law school because I didn't know this is what I wanted to do. So I went back to focus just on international, public international law. Um, and then I finished with my PhD at University of Virginia um, and uh, in international comparative um, relations to kind of mirror the international and comparative law degree out of Georgetown. Um, so that's a quick run through my, my background and education. Wow, Bonnie, that is tremendously impressive. I, I think you actually have the most degrees of anyone we've ever interviewed on the podcast. Um, but I did want to go back to, to talk about some of the non-proliferation issues for a moment, uh, specifically about one treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, because you were one of the attorneys who negotiated that treaty. Uh, and I was hoping that you could uh, very briefly tell us what that treaty is about and what you think about the decision, the May decision by the president to withdraw from Open Skies. Yeah, um, well, <clears throat> there's, a, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, bittersweetness, I guess, right now, because I not only was the attorney for that, for that treaty, but I also was one of two that work on the chemical, I mean, the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty, which we also have not yet ratified, which we haven't ratified. So um, <clears throat> I guess, okay, the Open Skies Treaty, uh, really, uh, it was negotiated um, at, a, at a time when there was a lot of changes going on in the world. It was like my first, it was my first entered government. It was right when I was, I just joined the Arms Control Disarmament Agency that I talked about. So I just was uh, right after my President Management Fellowship Program, I went there and they shipped me off like two days later to Vienna, Austria, where they were finishing up the, the end of something called the Conventional Forces of New York Treaty. Um, and, and after that, I stayed in Vienna because the, the Open Skies Treaty went from Helsinki to Vienna. That's where the negotiations moved. And so I stayed and I started working on that treaty, Open Skies Treaty, as the Conventional Forces of New York Treaty was getting ratified in, back at home. Um, and that treaty was happening, and keep in mind, the CFE treaty was negotiated when the, the German, when the Berlin Wall fell. So right at the very last three months of negotiation, you had all the stuff going on in Europe, right? And the treaty was between the Warsaw Pact and NATO, okay? So that was happening, and then Open Skies Treaty was moved to Vienna, as I said, and started working on that. And this occurred right when the Soviet Union fell apart. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories in that, which I won't go into. Um, so the treaty itself, which was following up on a, on a commitment or a statement that President Eisenhower said about uh, a, a treaty similar to that, which would be open skies where, where countries could allow planes to fly over other countries as a way to promote transparency and confidence building. And you would use cameras to be able to verify what countries were doing. And so when we, when we negotiated the Open Skies Treaty, one of the things we wanted to do was we figured it could be used to help us verify the Convention Forces in Europe Treaty, 
It can be used for other things. We were thinking about in the Chemical Weapons Convention at that time. We say it can help verify that. Um, so it was always going to be not a treaty where you're going to be counting the destruction of tanks or the destruction of nuclear weapons or anything like that. It was a confidence building measure and it would allow us to have planes with cameras and to, to do confidence building and see what countries were doing. Um, now the US and Russia, Soviet Union and Russia at the time already had very good verification through national technical means and satellites. So we already had a lot of good uh, ability to see what countries were doing, particularly each other. But a lot of other countries did not. And so they wanted, this was very valuable to them. And remember, this was NATO, Warsaw, then NATO and former Warsaw Pact countries. So there were a lot of NATO countries that didn't have that, that thought it would be, that didn't have the US satellites, that thought this would be very useful for them. And then you had a lot of countries um, in the Warsaw Pact and then the former Soviet Union who were really excited about it after, former, after the Soviet Union fell apart. Because they figured, hey, we could start figuring out what Russia's doing. Um, and then we had these, you know, you had three new, new countries that had nuclear weapons now, right? You had Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus, which inherited nuclear weapons from, from the Soviet Union. So you had another reason why you wanted to know what was going on. So, um, so there was a real interest in the treaty, even though it wasn't a traditional cut, destroy, verify kind of treaty, there was a lot of interest in it from a lot of countries. Um, so now when we're getting out of the treaty, all the other countries, as usual, the US is, is leaving treaties and countries aren't running after us and saying, oh, you're the important United States. If you leave, we have to leave. Everyone else is staying in. Um, and not only because they see a value in it, uh, but in what it can do, because like I said, they don't have as many technical means as we do, but even if they don't, they realize there's a value in being part of a group of countries who are working together. Um, and as I said earlier on the infectious disease issue, the type of threats we are facing now are global issues. So you need entities and forums where countries work together to resolve things. And so the more you have, the better. Um, but getting out of this treaty is once again, another treaty we're getting out of. Um, it's a lack of recognition that we are not the only country that's in the treaty. There's other countries who are part of it, that we were a part of a group who actually negotiated it. That when you do treaties, as I said in an article I wrote, when you do treaties, it's not like, I mean, everybody gives something up. That's how you get an agreement. Um, and so, you know, there's sacrifices made. And so when you just jump out of treaties, it's the lack of recognition that there were agreements that were made to actually get to the point where we got to an agreement, which are not easy when you have these treaties back in the day that lasted years and years and years. You know, I mean, so um, it doesn't look, once again, it just doesn't look good. We're out, we're by ourselves. No one's running after us and following us. They're figuring out how they can do it without us. And once again, we're the outlier. We're increasingly being an outlier um, at a time when we cannot afford to be an outlier. We're, we're lawyers, right? The, the people who listen to this podcast, the people who are recording the podcast. Um, so let's play devil's advocate. What are the advantages of the U.S. leaving the Open Skies Treaty? What, what is animating the administration to exit this treaty and the other ones you mentioned? Um, well, one of the reasons why is, um, and it's a good point that you say we're lawyers because as you, as, as we're saying, I, I guess as a lawyer, I'm, well, not only because I worked on a treaty, but as a lawyer, I'm particularly concerned when we get out of treaties because I 
you know, as a lawyer, you think you want to stay in treaties. Um, you want to stay in agreements unless uh, and try to work out agreements unless you can't. So, um, so the the concern was uh, that there was there were flights, there were parts, there were um, that Russia was not letting us fly over uh, a number of places that we wanted to fly over, and so there was a valid concern there because part of the treaty is that you will allow countries to actually see things. If you say you can't see something, then what's the value of a treaty? if it's to be able to fly where you want to fly. Um, and there's something called quotas. Each country gets active quotas, passive quotas. That's how many countries, that's how many times you can fly over another country and how many times they can fly over you. Um, so there was a concern about Russia not letting us go to places that we wanted to go. And that was a valid concern. So I don't want to gloss over the fact that there were things that we had concerns about. And that's usually true with, like even with the WHO. You know, we had concerns about China. Um, and so there are concerns. I think that the thing is how you deal with those concerns um, and the mechanisms that are used to try to address um, issues that exist and whether withdrawing is the best way to try to resolve the issue and what are the advantages of not being a part of it and, uh, and whether all of the mechanisms that exist in the treaty because each treaty provides mechanisms to resolve disputes and whether all those mechanisms have been used. So um, for each one of these, and there's others that we could, we don't, we're not going to talk about that we've withdrawn from, there are concerns that have been raised. So um, don't want to gloss over that. And so I'm glad you asked Yvette. Um, but um, I think a lot of the concern that's been raised is the way in which we address those concerns and whether withdrawing is the best route. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. If you've enjoyed this week's episode with Bonnie Jenkins, please come back next week where we'll be continuing our conversation with her and talking about more highlights from her career, including her work with the 9-11 Commission and a study that she's chairing on radioactive sources and alternative technologies. You can also hear more from Bonnie because she is moderating a panel from the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security's Women in National Security Law Group. The webinar panel will be August 12th at 4 p.m. and will feature senior women from the Office of General Counsel of several different intelligence agencies. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity to learn more and to sign up for free online. You can always find us there online, follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec, or email us at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org. We welcome your feedback. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice, and we'll be back next week with more content for you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.